Good evening, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Tectonic. My name is Mark Hurst. I will be your host for the next hour here on WFMU Freeform Station of the Nation. Live from downtown Jersey City in the great state of New Jersey. I'm happy to be here and thank you for joining me. We've got a great interview for you this evening with Jennifer Egan, Pulitzer Prize, <laughs> Pulitzer Prize, let me try that again, Pulitzer Prize winning novelist for her, she won the Pulitzer Prize in 2011 for her novel, A Visit from the Goon Squad, and I, I read that book when it came out, I really enjoyed that book, and now she has a new book out called The Candy House which is a kind, well, you'll hear, it's kind of a sequel to Goon Squad, although it's a standalone book. I also enjoyed reading The Candy House. And um, we're going to uh, run this interview with Jennifer Egan here in, in a moment. Um, let me just say that we will probably have a few minutes after the interview to discuss some other things going on in the world and uh, that may specifically tie into last week's show, which, of course, if you heard it, you know, it was the surveillance roundup. And quite a bit of news has, has come out uh, since last week's show. And there were even a couple of items that I, I, I failed to get to in last week's show. So in the remaining minutes after the interview, maybe we'll get to that. But first, I want to get to this interview with Jennifer Egan. If you'd like to join in the live listener chat, go to WFMU.org and click playlist and comments. If you're listening in the future, go to the one-page Tectonic site at tectonic.fm. That's T-E-C-H tonic dot F-M. And find the June 13, 2022 show and click on the playlist and you can read the comments that everyone had way back in the past in June of 2022. Let's go ahead and listen to this interview with Jennifer Egan, here on Tectonic on WFMU. Jennifer Egan, welcome to Tectonic. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to have you on the show to talk about your new book, The Candy House, which I enjoyed reading a lot. This is a kind of a sequel to your Pulitzer Prize winning 2010 novel, a visit from the goon squad and i say kind of a sequel because people can definitely read the candy house without having read goon squad just that if they have they'll recognize some of the characters who reappear here in the new book but what's really new and what i found especially engaging in the candy house was the focus on digital technology and digital platforms the first chapter in The Candy House is set in 2010 in a kind of a alternate history in which a New York-based tech founder goes on to create a massively popular platform where people can upload their memories to the cloud. And then later chapters jump to the past and into the future all the way to the 2030s. But the focus on technology is threaded throughout the characters and the stories. My first question, Jennifer, is what made you decide to write a novel with technology playing such a central role in the story? Well, decide is always a tricky word when it comes to fiction for me. I don't feel like I really do decide. I feel like it's decided for me by whatever first draft material I come up with. And my method is so improvisational because honestly, that's the only way to get good material for me. Um, my initial method, I should say, because I do lots and lots and lots of rewriting um, over years. But because of the improvisational nature of the original writing, I feel like I see what happens. I look at, I've tried to find what's interesting in it and see what it's telling me and then kind of push into that to see what happens. And that is how music became the center of a visit from the goon squad. That was not planned. <laughs> and it's how tech became the center of the candy house. That being said, there are certain interests and concerns that were building in me over the course of years. And I, and I, I'm very careful to note all of those things. So I can sort of keep them top of mind. And then I do find that these concerns 
some of which are structural and some of which are more kind of philosophical or cultural, they do tend to flow into that improvisational first draft material. So there are interests of mine that are there, but it was never really a decision to have tech be the through line of the candy house. That was something that resonated with me. Obviously, this this is a show about technology, and I'm interested in the effects that technology has on all of us. And I was really struck by the accuracy with which you named some of the challenges that we're facing. And I thought you gave, sadly, some very believable ideas for where technology could be headed in the next 20 years, this idea of uploading our memories to the cloud. Maybe we should take a moment to talk about what some of the technologies are in the story that came out after that improvisational method. There's something called the Mandala Consciousness Cube that connects to something called the Collective Consciousness. Can you describe what those are? Sure. And actually, maybe I'll talk about the genesis of of the invention, which really happens in Chapter 1. And I started with I started improvisationally with a character, Bix Bouton, whom we've met briefly in Goon Squad. Most people don't even remember him. And as you say, in my alternate reality, he has now invented social media. So he's a tech icon, instantly recognizable, super famous, surrounded by people who tell him what they think he wants to hear. But he's having kind of a midlife crisis because he knows that he has absolutely no idea what to do next. He feels that his social media idea has essentially been exhausted. And now what? He's 41 years old. So he goes in disguise to a group, a, a discussion group of Columbia University professors. He's incognito as a grad student. And what he's hoping for is just a sort of provocation that will induce some new vision in himself. And a, a series of rather crazy events results from that. I mean, obviously, this is sort of funny, like this guy is hiding amidst these Columbia professors, although he quickly realizes when he is 2010, when he discovers that none of them have even have iPhones, <laughs> it's you sort of wonder if he even needed to be in disguise or whether they would have had no idea who he was. But anyway, he ends up next to the East River in the middle of the night in the spot where he stood in 1993 with two friends from NYU, two guys, they had partied all night. These two undergrads ended up saying goodbye, walking down the river, going swimming, and one of them drowns, a guy named Rob. This is actually an event that we witness in the visit from the Goon Squad. Bix, our tech icon, wants to remember that morning and all of the events surrounding that drowning in the way that you can, for example, flesh out all kinds of things on social media. You can do searches, you can fill in blanks. And what he discovers is that he can't do searches or fill in any blanks when it comes to his own memory, which is very fragmentary. And he is just astonished by this. How can this be? <laughs> so that's really the impetus for the invention. The invention itself, as you say, allows people to externalize the whole of their consciousnesses, all of their memories and perceptions beginning at the moment of birth onto a luscious cube that, of course, is available in an array of colors and people fetishize which color they get, et cetera. So that's the basis of the invention. There is an additional possibility, which is purely voluntary, which is to share all or part of those memories to an online collective, the collective consciousness, of course, which you must do if you want access to that collective yourself. So it's you, you give to get. This is a model we know well now, for example, from Ancestry.com. If you want to know if you have relatives out there, you have to make your own results public. So this is this is the base. This is the essence of the machine. Bix himself did not anticipate how important the collective would become. And his angst over that is something that we come to understand better in the course of the book. But the real focus of the book is how people use this technology. And frankly, I get to use it, you know, narratively to do some fun stuff. Before the collective consciousness in that alternate history, was there something called own your unconscious from Bix Bouton? 
Well, own your unconscious is the cube. In other words, if you can externalize it, it's now yours, as opposed to your internalized consciousness, which you can't find 99.999% of. So you get to own it by externalizing it. And it's purely personal. It requires a DNA swipe to be viewed. You can Bix himself sets up his externalized consciousness to delete if anyone tries to view it. So it's purely personal uh, possession unless you choose to share it. And to Bix's surprise, the sharing part, but really to none of our surprise, <laughs> um, the sharing part becomes central and it's a, it's a cultural revolution of a sort because now social media becomes completely outdated, very performative, narcissistic. No, 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 no. That's all artificial. Now we can just deal with raw consciousness. Finally, we have found the authentic thing. That's, that's, right. that's the conceit. <laughs> yes, and there's there's a thread throughout the entire book about authenticity, which, which we'll get to. But I just wanted to say a word about these product names, which I love, Own Your Unconscious and The Collective Consciousness. Um, I think Jung is turning over in his grave right now. <laughs> I hope that he's laughing because I was trying to share a joke with him, but he may well be turning over as well. <laughs> no, I think I think you're right. He's laughing. I'm I'm kidding. But I, I I love the the satire here that your unconscious of all things is something that you can own. The the tech industry in this not so alternate history, very close to our own, has taken something that is intimate and personal and meaningful to us as individuals and as a community, they have hoovered it up and turned it into a financialized asset and then sold it back to us and saying, now you can own your unconscious. Isn't this wonderful? And we have it in an array of colors so you can personalize it to your living room. Such a crass bit of commercialization. And you highlighted that, I thought, perfectly with these product names. But it's it's in service of authenticity. And I wanted to read a quote I liked a lot from uh, Dwight Garner's review in the Times of The Candy House. This novel is about music, New York's East Village, magazine journalism, San Francisco in the 1970s, Gen X nostalgia, which I appreciated a lot, the digitalization of everything, and the search in the face of that vitality-sucking digitalization for forms of authenticity. And here is this thread, as I said, that comes through all of the stories, these characters, starting with Bix Bounton and moving on to all of the others in this hyper-digital world that you have built for us, Jennifer. These characters are desperate for authenticity, for meaning. And where do they turn to find authenticity, the cloud where there are digitized memories of friends, family, and strangers. As you say, you have to share in order to gain access to this cloud. And another product idea that I loved is the idea of gray grabs. Can you describe gray grabs? Yes. So gray grabs are snatches of memory that come from the collective consciousness. They're anonymous, i.e. it doesn't come along with a name of the person remembering. Although if you know the person, you can pretty easily identify them. The way gray, grab, gray grabs are used in a number of ways, there are people who are known as counters. So those are sort of empiricists and data gatherers, I guess the equivalent of you know, whoever it is at Google and Facebook that that sells our data to advertisers. But counters in this book are also using the collective consciousness to gather data, of course. And um, and they they also can access gray grabs, but their gray grabs are a little controversial. You're certainly not supposed to look at gray grabs of someone you know, for example. So there's a character named Lincoln in one of the chapters who is a counter, who's in love with his colleague, a, a woman. He's dying to find a way to make her fall in love with him. And he briefly considers that he could look at some gray grabs of her consciousness to know what she likes, what might win her over. But he quickly dismisses that idea as a violation that, in fact, would turn her against him. 
But one way we do see a person using gray grabs in the book is a guy who is a recovered drug addict who wants to know what has happened to his former dealer, a guy who used to sell him drugs like 15 years before. And our my character, Miles, is, is sort of invested in this idea that the drug dealer has gone on to do great things with his life, even though Miles himself is kind of stuck. So Miles shares just memories of this drug dealer named Damon to the collective. So that's the give. And what he gets in return is gray grabs that using facial matching, facial recognition from other memories in the collective that include Damon, this drug dealer. So in a fragmentary way, Miles is able to piece together Damon's life and unfortunately discovers he's now in prison. So this is a huge disappointment. He was he had ideas that maybe Damon would be a politician or a partner in a law firm. But in fact, Damon is doing pushups in a penitentiary yard. Well, isn't that just like what people do on Facebook? They say, what, what happened to my old high school sweetheart? But first, in order to get on Facebook, which, by the way, listeners, I do not recommend, uh, you have to share something about yourself. And actually, when, when you sign up for Facebook, you're sharing more than you even know. But that is the price for getting on to look up your old high school acquaintances. Well, that's the thing that I wanted to say about what you know what you were saying about you know the tech sort of takes our memories and and basically sells them back to us. I mean, I think the reason that all of this feels so familiar is that this is a a, a more exaggerated version of what's already happening. I mean, tech quote unquote connects us, you know, at, at the cost of selling us. We're the products, <laughs> so they take something that is easily possible in real life and they they enable it digitally at the cost of all of our data. I mean, that's the bargain. And look, I'm on Facebook, so I've obviously agreed to make that bargain. Although I I don't really post very much personal stuff, but you know, it's it it all feels familiar because it's one degree more extreme than what we've already done in many cases without really understanding what the bargain was because the attention economy is a hard idea to absorb if you think of an economy as something that involves an exchange of money. That's right. And this, we should say something about the title of the book. It only appears in my reading twice, near the beginning and at the very end of the book. Let me just read, this is the first instance of the title in the book that helps explain it. A character is musing about, quote, that eternal law, nothing is free. Only children expect otherwise, even as myths and fairy tales warn us. Rumpelstiltskin, King Midas, Hansel and Gretel, never trust a candy house. It was only a matter of time before someone made them pay for what they thought they were getting for free. Why could nobody see this? And that that got a double underline from me because (laughs) this idea of the candy house, and as you say, it's hard for people to conceptualize when they're told, take a bite out of the candy house. It's delicious. It's beautiful. And the tech companies and the VCs and the senior leaders, they play the role of the witch or the villain in these fairy tales. They're not telling the whole truth. And it's very difficult to get the word out about the real risk of the candy house that we live in. Yeah. And I mean, the context in which that appears is two young women who work with their father in the music industry. It's 1999. And suddenly the penny has dropped for all of them. And they they understand what is going to happen if Napster really takes off. If people can actually get music, quote unquote, for free. What's going to happen to the music industry? Well, as we all know, the music industry went into a complete free fall from which it has not really recovered. I mean, there's a new business model and it's a much less lucrative one for artists. I mean, that's the bottom line. So these young women are flailing around trying to figure out how to get people not to use Napster. And they briefly consider a billboard campaign, which, again, I find sort of hilarious. They have this idea that if they if they pave American highways with billboards, Billboards that say never trust a candy house, drivers will look at these billboards and say, oh, 
I guess I shouldn't use Napster. (laughs) Obviously, it's not a very good idea. They don't end up doing it. And the problem is that the internet created this idea that we were getting things for free. And that seemed very exciting. I certainly had no, I didn't use Napster, not even because I'm so ethical, but because I never even knew of it um, until I knew, understood what the bargain was. But, you know, a lot of us, the internet created an expectation of getting things for free. And it was very hard to understand that this was payment of a different form. These days, if one wanted to mount a billboard campaign, you'd have to fight against all the other advertising that is being bought by the tech companies. I mean, open any print publication of any political stripe, by the way, left, right, center, and it's likely to have a series of full-page ads, sometimes going on multiple full pages from either Facebook or Google, saying how wonderful the, the services are and how they deeply care about your privacy and are our defenders against all the bad people out there. So make sure to stay in the candy house of Facebook and Google and everything's going to be fine. Um, the messaging right now is very much in favor of the witch in the fairy tale. And we're back. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Tectonic on WFMU. My name is Mark Hurst. I'm your host. We are halfway through my interview with novelist Jennifer Egan, talking about her new book, The Candy House, which I enjoyed quite a bit, as you can tell from the interview. This is a novel that has many different interlocking stories, uh, drawing on some of the characters from her Pulitzer Prize-winning novel, A Visit from the Goon Squad, won the Pulitzer in 2011. Uh, But there is a thread through line in the candy house of technology and its effects on all of us. And that's what I have focused the interview on, as that is what we talk about here on Tectonic. Uh, When we go to the second half of the interview, we're going to dive more into some of the addiction that is covered in the novel. And uh, if you'd like to join in the live listener chat as we are going through the interview, go to WFMU.org and click Playlist and Comments. We've got a good discussion going on right now. Let's go ahead and listen to the second half of my interview with Jennifer Egan here on Tectonic on WFMU. Yeah, I mean, and there's also, there's a lot of addiction in the candy house. I mean, actual opioid addiction. And there's one character who dies of an overdose um, at age 57. The other thing that, that there's sort of an echo there, obviously, which is that all of these apps are created and updated by the best and the brightest that we have in America and, and globally to be as addictive as possible because quote unquote engagement is the key. If we're not staring at our phones, we are not making them money. So very smart and conniving forces are trying to figure out how to keep us from separating from these devices. I just think it's so important that we all remember that because I think we all stroll, I shouldn't say, I shouldn't speak for everyone, even I, a kind of technophobe, uh, a very incompetent late adopter, I struggle to, stay, you know, to, to, to separate from my phone at times. And we should all excuse ourselves for that struggle because we are up against very sophisticated forces who are trying to keep us on. It is an act of resistance to put a phone in another room and pick up a book. We, we have reached that point. That's right. I mentioned earlier that you are super accurate in the trends and ideas that you're highlighting in the Candy House. And one of them is this gravitational pull of the platforms to suck people in. And you use that metaphor explicitly. One character talking about the collective where the memories are uploaded says, the collective is like gravity. Almost no one can withstand it. In the end, they give it everything. And then the collective is that much more omniscient. It's a real problem, and it's, and it's real. This is not a metaphor. I mean, I mean, gravity is, I suppose. But there is a choice that people have to make uh, moment to moment, as you say, whether, whether they can put up a little more resistance. 
Yeah. I mean, the funny thing is, though, I realized someone listening to this conversation might get the idea that that my book is really a kind of Jeremiah against tech. But the truth is, it really isn't. You know, it's not like the two Dave Eggers books that are really, you know, searing indictments of that industry. I I feel more neutral. I have a lot of faith in human beings. I have two sons who are 19 and 21, and they are all over this stuff. They understand this stuff better than I do. And they both read a lot. So I guess I sort of feel like I, I, I was using all of this for the fun I could wring out of it, but it's not really a warning exactly. I mean, you can certainly read it that way, absolutely. And and I wouldn't presume to say that it shouldn't be read that way, but in the end, I was drawn to tech because of the fun I could have with it narratively. And the and the and the real focus, sort of the dramatic focus of the book is things people do with this machinery, which uh, translation, things I got to do narratively. One of which is, for example, grown children watching days in their in a, in a lost parent's life, for example, from that parent's point of view. So I just want to mention that because I, I feel I don't want to give uh, I don't want to give a wrong impression about the, the vibe of this book, which I think is more um, a little more lighthearted than we're making it sound. You're right. You're right. I'm glad you added that because I have a tendency to <laughs> <laughs> to get into the Jeremiah. But you're right. This this is a fun read. There is a chapter that reads like a series of very short instructions in an instruction manual, and it's one of the best adventure stories I've ever read. <laughs> you must have had fun writing the uh, the adventure story. I did. I mean, that was, um, I've always been interested in lists as a kind of inadvertent storytelling. I mean, if you think about it, if you look at a shopping list, you know a lot about the person who created that list. And so I've, I've been interested in list stories for a long time. And I also really love genre. So I uh, took a minor character from Goon Squad named Lulu, whom we really mostly see as a child in Goon Squad, and plunged her into the middle of a spy uh, mission in which she's working for the U.S. government in 2032 to infiltrate a group of men who are believed to be plotting against America and record their conversations and actions through implanted spy spyware implanted in her body. And she has to send a constant stream of bulletins to we're not sure who her handlers, I guess it's via a chip implanted in her brain, but they don't want to hear. I did this. I did that. They want to hear what lesson she derives from each step she takes. So it was, uh, you would think this would be like a straight jacket, all of these rules and limits, but what I find, and th- that story was written for Twitter at 140 characters, which is very different from Twitter today. Amazing what just that simple doubling did. It, we went from sentences to paragraphs, but the fun of it, it, so you would think it would just be impossible to try to tell a story in this way, but the the challenge with any sort of extreme structure is to find the story that can only be told that way. And somehow with Lulu on her spy mission, it was very freeing to tell the story in this way. And I think that what I got out of it um, narratively is that what would be a pretty bland genre-esque spy story becomes something a little different told in this way. So it would let me do genre in a way that, that I think I couldn't have pulled off trying to write it conventionally. You are exploring ideas of authenticity, as you say, by heightening what's happening already today. Is it authentic to look at the digital recreation of a memory, as one might do with a a photo or a video from 10 years ago? Why not? And what if everybody in the world had access to that? That's kind of neat. Yeah, I mean, the thing that I think you're edging up to here is that the machine itself is a little bit of a MacGuffin. I mean, what does it mean to externalize consciousness? What is consciousness? Consciousness 
is totally subjective. And when we think about watching, you know, raw footage of our memories, what on earth would that be? Our, our perceptions are totally subjective. So that's where it all starts to break down a little bit. And I didn't get too close to that. And my conceit is you can put on a headset and be inside someone else's mind. Yeah. But if you put, if you look too closely at that, it starts to kind of break down and, and it becomes, and, you know, memory itself and, and narrative is is curated sometimes for very good purposes um we protect ourselves from things that will hurt us and actually one of the things that we see in the book is people revisiting memories that actually really are that that they think will solving mysteries using own your unconscious using the collective but in fact being hurt by some of what they discover. Just as one example, there's a woman named Charlene who uses the collective to view a day in her father's life when she was only six years old. And she sees herself through his eyes as a six-year-old, a day when he go, he's he ends up on this, he's a straight-laced California businessman. He ends up on this kind of crazy adventure in the California woods in 1965, where he encounters marijuana for the first time and smokes it and has a kind of cultural revelation. He realizes that something new is happening. It hasn't really arrived yet, but he wants to be part of it. And that catalyzes his leaving his wife, creating enormous disruption in his children's lives. And by watching this memory, Charlene is able to see the genesis of this real transformation of her father. But she also learns something else, which is that her father was consciously aware and thinking all the time about the fact that he loved her brother more than he loved her. And he actually ruminates about this. Isn't that normal? Don't most men love their sons more? She has to, she has to know this. And it's kind of a, it speaks to the fact that, you know, I think to a certain degree, we're better off not knowing a lot of each other's thoughts. So Sometimes going back is painful. And I guess in the end, I, I'm a real believer in privacy being private, that it's actually not good for any of us to know everything about each other, much as we might want to share. And you see relentless sharing, of course, on social media now. And, and that, I think, comes from a genuine wish for connection, a wish to know and be known. And yet, a lot of what we see online, I know, is painful to all of us. The anger, the rage, the vitriol. Why? Do we need to know it? Probably not. And that raises a follow-on question, which is in an information-saturated environment where we're just being drenched in all these different media sources, some of which are very painful, as you said, whose job is it for us to achieve meaning and authenticity? It's not the machine, and it's not the, the counters or the quantifying data experts within Google. It has to be someone else. In some, in some way, we each have a responsibility to make meaning out of our own lives. But there was one other hero who emerges in your story. I loved this part of the book. I'm going to give you the punchline here, but I'm, you probably already know where I'm headed. I don't. I'm so curious. <laughs> <laughs> you make a brief mention early in the book when you're talking about the counters versus the eluders. These are the, the counters who are sort of like the, the Google-ish data experts who are trying to quantify everything using surveillance data and machine learning and analysis to make meaning that way. And then you have the eluders who are mounting a resistance by trying to throw a wrench into the quantifying data machinery by, for instance, having people impersonate certain accounts. And you have one of the characters, right? Most proxying is orchestrated by Mondrian. Mondrian's most sophisticated proxies are live professionals, usually fiction writers, I'm told, who impersonate multiple identities at once. I said, oh, Jennifer Egan. Those <laughs> fiction writers who impersonate multiple identities at once, you know anybody like that? <laughs> well, that was a little, that was definitely a humorous little moment. <laughs> but, but, but then it goes on. At the very end of the book, you tie it all together because for me, the book is asking the question, 
who's going to lead us to authenticity? Who's going to lead us to meaning when we're beset by all of this weaponized algorithmic data junk all around us? At the very end of the book, we find that even with all of the externalized memory and the and, and the collective and the gray grabs and everything else available to everyone in society, even with all of that, the world is no more empathetic than it was before all of that access. Of course, there are some secondary benefits of solving crimes, like you said, and, and you list in one section a bunch of benefits of having access to, to memories. But even Bix Bouton's son, the tech founder's own son, he forswears use of this technology that his father brought to the world. Big Spouton's son is named Gregory. And you're right, nothing could change Gregory's belief that own your unconscious posed an existential threat to fiction. And I said, that's, that's it. The existential threat can be countered by fiction writers, those who can impersonate multiple identities at once and who can give us the power to inhabit other people's perspectives, memories, points of view, without using surveillance technology. Thoughtful fiction can give us a path to meaning and authenticity in a technological society. Well, <laughs> um, I hope you're right. And what I will say is that I believe very firmly that thus far, Fiction is the only narrative art form that actually gives us the experience of being inside another consciousness. Anything that is, if you're looking at a picture, you are by definition in the opposite position. You are on the outside trying to imagine your way inside. And tech offers, I mean, there are, there are ways in which the internet is getting very close. For example, if you watch a streamer playing a video game or playing chess, you are seeing what that person is seeing. So you're looking through their eyes at the image and you're hearing what appears to be a stream of consciousness reaction to the game itself. So it's very close to the experience of consciousness, but you have to watch them playing a video game. I mean, yes, you get a little glimmer of what it's like to be in another person's mind, but it's so limited and it's, also performative. Let's face it, there's a lot of what's going on in their mind that we're not hearing. So to my mind, fiction, which is also an artifice, let's not forget, but does not involve images. It actually simulates, I think, better than anything else, the experience of being inside other people's minds. The one thing that worries me is, you know, it's easy to fall out of the habit of reading. It's much easier to look at pictures. And so it sometimes takes a little, you have to regenerate that muscle memory. It's so easy. We're very trainable creatures, we humans. I mean, if the pandemic has taught us anything, it's that. But we have to keep those muscles strong in order to, for it to not be work and just be pleasure. But I really do believe that, that fiction can do that and does that. Um, and I want to, you know, what you were saying about authenticity is so important. And I, I use it in all kinds of ways in books, some of them, you know, very ridiculous. I mean, I have a character who is so obsessed with authenticity that he begins a practice that becomes a little bit of, a, of an addiction, actually, for him of screaming in public so that he, of course, creates a gigantic ruckus and terror and, and you know, people start freaking out and he just soaks up those authentic reactions and the people around him. But the problem of, you know, we, we really fetishize authenticity and we, and as a culture, we look for it online. But one of the things that I've thought, been thinking about for a really long time, and this isn't my idea, it came from a book published in 1961 by a guy named Daniel Borston, a historian, who points out, and he's just talking about 1950s television, really, um, that mediated experience is inherently artificial. It is constructed with the semblance of naturalness, but, but it's not. <laughs> that leaves the viewer with a sense of artificiality that leads to a hunger for authenticity and the me and mass media, whatever it may consist of, tries to satisfy that hunger 
with products that are ever more mediated to create an ever greater sense of authenticity. But if we're looking to media for authenticity, we are clearly looking in the wrong place because the only place to find this thing that we're trying to get is just in real life. I mean, and I just want to mention one app that my one of my sons told me about the other day where he suddenly on the subway, like got a message from his phone and had to take a picture of both of us. The, I was in stitches. This is called Be Real. Yep. And Be Real, the whole idea is to stop making people curate their photos and give up a moment of naturalness by spontaneously telling people when they have to record their their themselves and their surroundings. And it's like, it's just so beautiful. It's exactly what Borston was saying in 1961. And here we are, and we're still doing it. So I guess if the book advocates for anything, it's certainly reading, but it's also just being aware that the thing we're looking for can't be found in the place that we're looking for it. Well said. As you write in the last page or two, only Gregory Bounton's machine, this one, fiction, lets us roam with absolute freedom through the human collective. Knowing everything is too much like knowing nothing. Without a story, it's all just information. And this was a story, The Candy House, actually a series of stories that show us a path to greater authenticity in a, in a moment when we really need it. Thank you. I mean, that's a, that's a wonderful thing to hear. And, you know, in the end, I see the book as kind of a celebration rather than an indictment. And that was a surprise to me. I should just say that I have felt so much dread about where we're going technologically and environmentally. And the two are connected because I, I feel like people are so distracted by the kind of performative narcissism that and, and, and ridiculous fights online, which are encouraged by tech companies that need our engagement and nothing engages faster than anger, that I find myself thinking, how the hell are we going to solve these massive problems that we have? So I feel very worried as a, as a regular person. But what I found, the, the what the book says is we can do this. We are incredibly resilient and adaptable creatures capable of great feats. And I have a lot of faith in human beings to figure this out. This book is a lot of fun, and it's got a lot of lessons for our world today and tomorrow. It's called The Candy House by Jennifer Egan. Jennifer, thanks so much for being on Tectonic today. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Tectonic on WFMU. My name is Mark Hurst. I'll be your host for the remaining 15 minutes of the show. And then I'd like you to stay tuned for Spin the Globe with Ebba coming up at the top of the hour. Followed by Vocal Fry with the great Dan Boda. Followed by Brother Daniel Blumen taking you all the way to midnight Eastern time. We just heard my interview with novelist Jennifer Egan talking about her new book called The Candy House, which I enjoyed a lot and, as I said during the interview, is a kind of a sequel to A Visit from the Goon Squad, which won the 2011 Pulitzer Prize. The, the new book, The Candy House, has a lot to say about technology. Of course, it's an alternate history and an alternate future that involves uploading of memories and consciousness and what that does to people and there's many twists and turns in the lives and relationships of the characters but as I said I I thought it really posed a question of where are we going to turn in order to create meaning in our lives and in our communities when everything is turned into data and everything is quantified, everything is analyzed, everything is sent through a machine learning algorithm, and everything eventually is attempted to be rendered up to the toxic business models 
of Silicon Valley companies and venture capitalists, where do we turn in order to build and enjoy a meaningful life? Because there is, there is no meaningful life when you are fully quantified and set up to be analyzed and manipulated. Let's, let's be clear, that's not meaning. That may deliver growth and profit to a handful of dudes and their companies on the West Coast of North America, but that's not meaning for the rest of us. And I thought Jennifer Egan answered the question with a uh, deceptively simple ending in the book. I, it's really a profound thought that where we should turn is to storytelling, that that very human activity that I have not seen any GPT-2 algorithm or DALI or any of those ridiculous uh, attempts at meaning-making from OpenAI and Google and Microsoft and all the rest. They do some things that are sort of interesting with technology, but they don't make meaning. We need other people. We need people, first of all, people, not robots, to make meaning. And one group of people that we should be turning to and paying more attention to are fiction writers. Fiction writers like Jennifer Egan and like others uh, who we have talked about on this show. Notice that books keep coming up on Tectonic. <laughs> just two weeks ago, I, I think it was just two weeks ago, I had Jeff Deutsch on talking about his book, In Praise of Good Bookstores. I keep talking about that book in that interview. And this, this interview with Jennifer Egan fits right into that that in this increasingly uh, exploitative technological society, we should be turning more to books, more to, to novelists and, and, and fiction, uh, and, and nonfiction as well. Let's not leave them out. But I think to the point of the interview this evening, there is a special importance in the work that people like Jennifer Egan uh, are, are doing and are bringing to us and gifting us in, in this society right now. So thanks very much to Jennifer Egan for being on Tectonic, and um, I hope she will have another book in the future that will allow me to invite her back onto the, although she's invited back anytime. She doesn't have to write a book in order to come back. We can continue the conversation if she'd like to come back on the show. Uh, I mentioned at the very beginning of the show that there were, there's some new news uh, that fits in with last week's theme, which was the surveillance roundup. And uh, one thing that uh, uh, I have seen mentioned a lot, and it came up on the comment board this evening, is that John Oliver, who's the host of Last Week Tonight, which is this weekly show on HBO, uh, had an important episode that came out just yesterday. The show airs on uh, Sundays, I guess, on HBO, but I'm, I'm pretty sure the whole thing, or at least this whole segment is posted on uh, Google's toxic video service called YouTube, and um, you might endure the surveillance from Google in order to watch the, the John Oliver uh, segment. It has to do with antitrust and big tech, and there's a lot of news happening right now uh, on Capitol Hill as a bipartisan effort is taking shape to try to pass some legislation to end the self-preferencing of companies like Google and Amazon and Apple, uh, in which these companies run the marketplaces like the App Store on Apple or like the, um, like the e-commerce that uh, Amazon hosts with the third-party sellers. They have ways, these companies have ways of exploiting the uh, marketplace for their own ends. And it's, it, it's probably illegal what they're doing, but certainly if we can get a law passed, it will be illegal and we, we can put a stop to that. I don't have time to go deep. Obviously, I'm just, <laughs> we just have a few, few uh, minutes left in the hour, but I might be able to dive into it in a subsequent show, maybe, maybe in a week or two, we'll see. Uh, but do look up that uh, John Oliver uh, video and take a look at that. One other uh, news bit that I wanted to pass along, this just came out, which was that there is new facial recognition, apparently, that is being launched on a trial basis at Detroit's air airport, and it's being launched by Delta Airlines. Now, I don't know 
why Delta chose Detroit. Uh, maybe someone who knows Delta better than I do or, or aviation news can, can tell us why on the comment board. But anyway, it's Delta Airlines at Detroit Airport, and it's just a tr on a trial basis. They've launched some new facial recognition. Now, I have talked about facial recognition at airports before in which uh, airlines will use your face, scan your face, and, and try to convince you that it's purely for your convenience so that you don't have to pull out the boarding pass or maybe show your phone where you have the QR code on the screen. And they say, isn't it so much easier to, for us to scan your face uh, than for you to show us the boarding pass. See how many microseconds that saved you? I mean, that, that might have even saved you one quarter of one second. So obviously it's a, it's a very, uh, it's a not very persuasive uh, benefit that it's for convenience. Obviously, facial recognition is in service of surveillance capitalism and the continued growth of the surveillance state and the really harmful profit model that pretty much all large companies are beginning to embrace if, if they haven't gotten around to it already. This is the model that was pioneered by Google and then Facebook, and now everyone's doing it, and Delta Airlines is following along. Well, that facial recognition has been here and there at airports everywhere for a couple of years, using your faces as your boarding pass. This is new. This is new. What's happening at Detroit Airport is they're using facial recognition. Get ready for this, friends. They're using facial recognition when you look at the big screen showing departures, that big digital uh, display that shows departures at the airport, that now is going to have cameras on it that scan your face. Why in the world would they want facial recognition? Well, we know why they would want facial recognition. They want to scan your face everywhere they can. But how do they possibly justify this growth of the surveillance state? What they say is, we're going to scan your face and we're going to show you your flight information when you're looking at the board purely for your convenience because you know it just when you look up at a normal departure board and there's like two dozen flights it's just so confusing it takes many many minutes if not hours to find the flight that you're going to be on who can make sense of a departure board that has an alphabetized list of cities who can figure that out so we're going to use facial recognition so we can display to you your flight purely for your convenience. And that, friends, is ridiculous. That is the latest insult that big corporations have tried to uh, pass by us as they institute one more element of the surveillance state that is drawing down your private and personal information in ways that you're not aware of. So without your knowledge or consent, this is happening everywhere. Uh, I'm, and I'm, I, I'm, I'm not driving at a solution. I can't tell you to call up uh, Delta and get them to stop the, the trial. I can't even tell you to opt out of the departure board. That's the thing. If you need to find the departure board, you're going to get your face scanned. That's where we're headed. With, the, with your face as a boarding pass, sometimes you can opt out of that and, and, and show the paper slip. When this stuff gets over to the departure board and there are cameras everywhere, then they're going to really work on habituating you to this new environment. And we, all I know is we should resist. I'm not sure how, but we should resist. Until then, friends, you have been listening to the greatest radio station in the world, WFMU East Orange, WMFU Mount Hope in New York City, in New York City and Rockland County at 91.9 FM and online at WFMU.org. And until next week, you have some homework, friends, and I think you know what it is. I want you to avoid Amazon and Apple. Forget Facebook. And whatever you do, get off Google. And you know how we make meaning, friends? We don't go to robots. We don't go to AI. We don't go to algorithms. We don't go to data. We do not go to big tech. We go to Willie Nelson, who in his 72nd album... I learned today from Joe McGasco's show. Thank you, Joe. Uh, that just came out, new album called A Beautiful Time. Billy Nelson sings a familiar song to tell us where we can build our meaning. Have a great week, everybody.
What would you think if I sang out of tune? Would you stand up and walk out on me? Lend me your ears and I'll sing you a song And I'll try not to sing out of key Oh, I get by with a little help from my friends I get high with a little help from my friends I'm gonna try with a little help from my friends What do I do when my love is away? Does it worry you to be alone? How do I feel by the end of the day? Are you sad because you're on your own? I get by with a little help from my friends. I get high with a little help from my friends. I'm gonna try with a little help from my friends. Do you need I need somebody to love Could it be anybody? I want somebody to love I'm certain it happens all the time Now what do you see when you turn out the light? I can't tell you, but I know that it's mine And I get by with a little help from my friends I get high with a little help from my friends I'm gonna try with a little help from my friends I just need somebody to love Could it be anybody? I want somebody to love I get by with a little help from my friends Coração, 
Stefano 